I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. I'm taking my time. All I could talk in is starting to rhyme. I'm letting go lonely, letting go strife. I just can't get enough of this beautiful Enneagram is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships, creates language for what motivates us, and helps us look at the way we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram is for Middle-Earth characters and for dissecting the inner lives of fictional people who we've never met and apparently never will. But you know what, TJ? Yeah. It's good times. It is good times. I'm Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado. With me is the TJ Wilson businessman, lover of theology, and man who apparently knows more about Middle Earth than I do for the <laughs> second straight week. Hello. <laughs> I'm, I, I started this podcasting series asking if you were intimidated, and now I have realized I need to, I need to up my game. I need to work on my jump shot. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see at the end of this one, which, which one of us is uh, a, a little more well-versed in these characters. He said to the guy who teaches it at a university. (laughs) (laughs) Really discouraging for that fact. Um, But these are fantastic movies from a fantastic book. Most read book of the 20th century, according to some estimates. You got a Lord of the Rings film story? Not really. Uh, I uh, we've talked about how we we watch these films every year at uh, around around the holidays and it has always been my dream to wake up on a saturday and uh imbibe on some some uh some substance and then just like binge the whole thing all day long i have not been able to actually accomplish this yet but one day that's a thing that i'll do it's just like all all i do is binge and eat too many munchie snacks i've done this for both the hobbit and for the lord of the rings i did for the lord of the rings when i got my tonsils and adenoids out Mm, so it was actually a miserable experience (laughs) but you had prescription drugs for it (laughs) man i my body does not like whatever people are addicted Mm. to i go the opposite direction yeah i get that i mean i don't get that because i'm the exact (laughs) opposite (laughs) <laughs> so, this is amazing. Did it for The Hobbit, where we watched two extended cuts and then went to the movie theater to watch the new one. Got out of that third movie and was just bummed out. Yeah. <laughs> it was just wrecked. It was like, one, it was too much Hobbits, and two, that the third movie, as we've said in the past, it's was just, it's was, rough. Oh, man. So, it's but. Rough. I did fly through these pretty quickly. Sure. Uh, yeah. Doing all the notes. My first experience of uh, these movies, actually, it's the third movie that I remember. We went to the Basalt Movie Theater, which can hold like 50 people. Sure. We had the last tickets, yeah. and Good we're in basalt. the bottom left-hand corner. In like Basalt, real estate in Basalt is asinine. It's right outside Aspen. Mm-hmm. So the movie theater itself is just tiny and packed, and and I'm in the furthest corner you could possibly get. I can see half of the film, and I was so mad mm-hmm. because, as you have said, Tolkien fan myself, right. I got just the worst seat in the house. 
But my favorite experience watching these was with my three-year-old. When Beckett was young, I had started watching them. Beckett would come in and watch them with me. And he started at the beginning with me, and I was like, all right. And as things are kind of progressing, there's a little bit more violence, a little bit more violence. Hey, Mm -hmm. decapitation. (laughs) And just no movement at all. Yeah. These movies are so bloody, as you <laughs> yeah. know. It, apparently, I think these movies have more casualties than any other films, like ever. I believe, like that. shown on film. Yeah, but it's fine. It's orcs. We're seven <laughs> hours in, you know, to the extended cut, or eight or nine hours in, and uh, we get to the Shelob scene. Uh huh. And then things change. Yep. And that spider <laughs> came out, and he immediately scoot across uh, the couch, grab my arm tight and just start shaking. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I've, uh, binging this with a toddler at home has been really, uh, interesting. Yeah. Because like there's, there's a bunch of stuff. It's like, Oh, okay. Well, I guess we're going to save that till mom gets home <laughs> and she can have you upstairs and I can watch this incredibly gory thing happen. <laughs> totally forgot that you're having the experience yeah yep does she watch any of it oh yeah uh but i mean she she's not old enough to even remotely comprehend what's going on and she's not interested for longer than a few minutes right which i'm actually kind of grateful for sure (laughs) but yeah that's really fun those kids them kids well we are gonna build on our first episode of typing Lord of the Rings characters, and we're going to jump into our mistyping throwdown. Excellent. Uh, Obviously, TJ and I went our separate ways. We typed 20 different Lord of the Rings characters, came back. We agreed on three of them. Right. Experts that we are. (laughs) (laughs) Which just goes to to be humbled. This is why you shouldn't type people. (laughs) I do like that as a lesson learned. It just proves, it just proves what we've been saying. Yep. Yeah, right there. <laughs> uh, to just further the fun, then, uh, what we end up doing is dialoguing through each of the characters that we disagreed with. If you're new to the Enneagram, this can be fantastic, especially if you're just looking for your type, because we're going to talk through two different types and kind of how they present in the world, but really trying to expose their motives and talk about their motives through what we see on these films. And so, especially if you're into the Lord of the Rings, this might be a fantastic way to just dig into your own, you know, debate about what type fits you best. And that's where we're going. You got anything to to add to that? No, I don't think so. And we've done a thorough job of uh, laying out all of our all of our things at the beginning of the episode that you should have listened to before <laughs> this one. So, hey, DJ. Yeah, what's up? What's the one rule for uh, coming to the Enneagram and learning the Enneagram, getting excited about the Enneagram, yeah. wanting to talk to your family about the Enneagram, yeah. and then uh, judging your family with the Enneagram? What's the one rule? One rule is don't. <laughs> one rule to rule them all. It's really just a test for all of us to see if we have self-control. Right. Which most of us don't. We've all done it. <laughs> we get it. We're, we're, we're talking to ourselves here. Don't type other people. <laughs> that's, that's right. It's just us just reminding ourselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You just need to eat better. You just need to eat better. You yep, need to eat better. Eat better. <laughs> Get some more sleep. Drink more water. Don't type other people. All right. Well, 
Every single time we've done a deep dive into characters, we have gone with my list because I'm the moderator and I get to decide where we're going. Just fine by me. This time, I merge. TJ has a better list, especially for performance sake. So we're going to go with TJ's numbers first, dissect uh, the character in front of us, have a good time doing it, rock and roll. Yeah, should be fun. We're going to begin with TJ's head triad, which allows us to start with the fives. Great. And I don't know if we've talked about favorite characters. I imagine my favorite character in these is is Gandalf. Sure. That makes sense. It's a worthwhile place to start, yeah. I believe. I have no argument against that. My favorite character is Tree Beard. So. Ah, there you go. I almost always accidentally align myself with the nines. <laughs> like in most stories, I'm like... Is that person, that favorite character of mine? Oh, they're a nine? Oh, that's why they're my favorite. Like seeing yourself on film? I guess, yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, good. Well, where are the things that strike you first about Gandalf and, and his fiveness? Well, uh, so the first thing I want to say, and and this, I feel like starting with this is a little out of character for me because I normally would save this until later in my argument, but I, I think the most important thing that we should the the most important lens that we should use to consider Gandalf is that he is probably the most mature character in these stories and even more mature than a lot of the characters that are presented that we typically see. Like usually characters are presented in a way that offers them opportunity for growth. And I don't think that Gandalf's story requires growth. I think that he is a, a, a guide and a, um, like he, he, he's the, the wise old man that, that puts the hero on their path. And, and so we don't necessarily need to see an arc for Gandalf's story. And part of, part of how he is written is that he is remarkably mature and you might even say integrated so I think that Gandalf is also one of the hardest characters to type for that reason. When we see characters that are integrated, when we see them, when when we interact with people that have wisdom, have matured, have, have spent time on themselves, it's actually hard to see these personality types because they have sort of overcome some of the unconscious ways that they present in the world. And Gandalf has had hundreds of years and magic in order to <laughs> overcome some of his unconscious personality traits. So putting that right out front, I think Gandalf is one of the hardest characters to type because he is mature. So I think that we're going to see a lot of character traits from different types show up in him. But what, what strikes me as the the sort of most like grounding place for him, the motivation, it seems to me like he displays the types of decision making and and observation and and all of the things that go along with being a five. Again, a very mature five. So we see him pushing into his eight wing a lot. We see him pushing into his seven wing in very mature ways, particularly at the very beginning of the story. Uh, I actually uh, was trying to type him as a seven when I, when I sat down to do this work, partly because I wanted to shoehorn mm -hmm. fellowship into the nine types. But I think that his fiveness, the way that he, he is an observer, 
Uh, he, he doesn't necessarily want to impose his will on everyone. He wants to give everyone the facts and let them make their own decisions. But when obvious leadership is uh, failing, he will step into a place of leadership and sort of take control of the situation a little bit. Um, I think that he's sort of protective of his knowledge and his things, but not in a way that, not in a way that that looks greedy or hoarding. He's just like he he's smarter than everyone else, so he's he's protective of the things that other people can't handle. And yeah, we'll talk more, but that's that's the gist. I should have mentioned this earlier that uh, a lot of our mistypes here are going to share something important. Mm-hmm. And I recall this from our previous conversation. A lot of our typing is going to occur on the line. There's going to be an arrow. So just a real quick word on that. Each of the types, when they go to security or when they go to stress, can borrow some of the traits from other types. In fiction, when there's a, you know, a worldwide war taking place, it may push some of the characters into stress. Or when we see them at their best, at their most joyful we can see them in security. Gandalf, uh, I'm in the type as a, I typed as an eight, and fives and eights share two things. They share an arrow. Uh, eights go to five in stress. Fives go to eight in security, and then they also share an affect. Uh, you want to talk about fives and eights and their affect? Yeah. So fives and eights, uh, along with twos, they sort of come to the world expecting rejection that's that's the way we talk about it that they expect to be rejected and so they sort of shut off their inner selves and offer only something that they think is valuable so eights offer strength security power fives offer information and and all three of those types they 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 sort of guard their inner life and and don't let people see that and it's for different reasons for each type but but that's that is something that both eights and fives have very much in common is that they they shut off their inner selves they don't expose what's going on inside and they offer something else instead that's where i see Gandalf most, he is routinely offering power. In fact, the primary for this character, if I was going to elevate it, is nearly everything out of his mouth is about power uh, positions in his world. It's like he's got a radar for power. Um, What are the dynamics at hand? Part of that is knowledge, but you can know all kinds of things. You're not obsessed with power necessarily as a five. Gandalf's obsessed with power. Hmm. He's obsessed both with the power that um, Sauron has or that Saruman has or with the power that his own people have and where their strength lies. This plays into small things like his obsession with fireworks. It also plays into big things down the road as he is seeking to speak to kings Denethor and Theoden and Aragorn and try and coordinate this is what you ought to be doing with the resources that you have. Um, that's the first big thing for me. And the second is that this character is aggressive. I, he may be the most aggressive character in these films, in my mind, and that would move him more towards eight and more away from five, unless he's thoroughly secure all the time and it's just the data is flowing out of him in that aggressive way. If he's That mm-hmm. would be the move on the line. The place that I really see Gandalf 
I, I actually disagree with you in, in, on this front that I do think he has an arc, and his arc is all about Moria. We could pass through the mines of Moria. My cousin Balin would give us a royal welcome. No, Gimli. I would not take the road through Moria unless I had no other choice. He feels vulnerable, hmm. and that is the one thing that he really avoids in the whole story is going into the mines of Moria because he doesn't want to confront the Balrog. Moria, you fear to go into those mines. The dwarves delve too greedily and too deep. You know what they awoke in the darkness of Khazad-dûm. Shadow and flame. Let the ring bearer Decide. Frodo. We will go through the mines. So be it. And I think that exposes perhaps something inside of him. And that's also the place where he transitions from Gandalf the Grey to Gandalf the White, is in his meeting his vulnerability, you know, there. Uh, uh, what is it? The uh, on the bridge at Kazadoom, right? And his defensiveness for the fellowship is again very aggressive. Very, my power is out in front, screaming at a big old fire rock demon. You cannot pass, Gandalf. And you'll notice he says kind of like a prayer after it. I am a servant of the secret fire. Wielder of the flame of Arnor. The dark fire will never fail you. Flame of Yeah, and it's like he's talking himself up. It's like, I have what it takes in this moment. Sure. That would be my case. Well, I I hear what you're saying, and I think it's a reasonable argument, and I think that it is... I see all of those things from the five perspective. The, mm-hmm. I I think he uses the word power several times but i don't think that that's his necessarily his focus i think that the storytelling wise that's i that's what he's talking about but i think as a as a character he seems to me to be offering information he has strength he has considerable power that he doesn't necessarily bring to the table unless it's needed what i hear from him all of the time all of the almost all of the things that he says is offering some kind of information it's a story about something that happened or just trying to get people to see something from a different perspective like there's there's a lot of objectivity being offered here this is the one ring forged by the dark lord sauron in the fires of mount doom taken by Isildur from the hand of Sauron himself. Bilbo found it. In Gollum's cave. Yes. For 60 years, the ring lay quiet in Bilbo's keeping, prolonging his life, delaying old age. But no longer Frodo. Evil is stirring in Mordor. The ring has awoken. It's heard its master's call. And 
I, I think that I, I, again, we, we come up against the problem of this is a remarkably mature character. He is not exhibiting the kind of control that I would expect to see from an eight. Like I, I would expect to see an eight telling people what they're going to do instead of offering them an option, which I think Gandalf is continually offering an, an opportunity. I think you should leave the ring behind, Is that so hard? Well, no. And yes. I like that as an image. Mm-hmm. The very first scene with Gandalf and Bilbo seems pretty direct with him saying, not only calling him out as a confrontational per- person, you think that's very terribly clever. Magic rings shouldn't be used lightly. And Bilbo, the ring's still in your pocket. And, and him raising up with power in that moment. Oh, my business isn't of yours when I do with my own things. I think you've had that ring quite long enough. You want it for yourself! Bilbo Baggins! Do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. Trying to help you. He's the strong one in that situation, and he's given directions. And notice the two that sneaks in uh, in terms of his ambitions, uh, that he wants to help Bilbo be free of this addiction. He's it, that feels very aggressive to me. Yeah, I th- there again, I I don't see I don't see that aggression being something that he leads with all the time. I think that it's it comes out when it needs to because he knows how to use it. When he talks to Theoden and Denethor, I feel like he's real aggressive in saying here's what you need to do as an advisor, certainly. You still have friends. You are not alone in this fight. Send word to Theoden of Rohan. Light the beacons. You think you are wise, Mithrandir. Yet for all your subtleties, you have not wisdom. With your left hand, you would use me as a shield against Mordor. And with your right, you'd seek to supplant me. I know who rides with Theoden of Rohan. Oh, yes. Word has reached my ears of this Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and I tell you now, I will not bow to this ranger from the north, last of a ragged house long bereft of lordship. Authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. The rule of Gondor is mine, and no other's. Demanding. Uh, when With Denethor, its authority has not been granted for you to deny the return of the king, steward. But there again, <laughs> he's, especially with Denethor, I think Denethor is, to me, is, is one of the, the clearest points where, mm-hmm. where the eight as a, as a security point mm-hmm. comes out. Because in in so many other situations, he he's not going to take control, except here's Denethor, who is clearly, clearly off his rocker. Uh-huh. And this guy is in charge of a city and thousands of lives, and he needs to get his crap together. 
And Gandalf, recognizing that power vacuum, steps in and says, I'm going to take control of this situation because you won't. He hits him three times with a staff and then yells to everybody, Prepare for battle! <laughs> that feels not only very aggressive, but as a, that's less about I know what's going on. That feels like more I'm gonna take I'm gonna take charge because there's a vacuum. And that's being that he doesn't take charge very often, to me that reads as a as a five insecurity moment. Another image of that is the Soldiers of Gondor saying that battalions of orcs are crossing the river. It is the Lord Denethor predicted. Long has he foreseen this doom. Foreseen and done nothing. And it's that's the move to like it's almost as though Gandalf usurps him. Like there's a little coup that takes place because because Denethor is so unhealthy. Right. Do fives conduct coups <laughs> of that sort? I mean. Incredibly mature fives might. <laughs> I, I I think that an eight might have taken over a long time before that, though. Let's let's talk about the the Council of Elrond. Yeah. Okay. There is a central move that needs to take place, and it comes from Gandalf. When everybody starts fighting, he raises up and begins spewing forth profanities. Right. It, they're not profanities, but it's the black, the black speech, speech of, of Mordor. Mordor. <laughs> Never has this tongue been heard here. And then notice Gandalf says, Do not ask your pardon, Master Elrond. Just like an eight might. Or a the, five. A five wouldn't ask for a pardon? No. Oh, no. Let me think about that. And Because he's, he's coming to that situation and saying, Here's the real deal, y'all. <laughs> For the black speech of Mordor may yet be heard in every corner of the West. The ring is altogether evil. I th- I th- it again feels very aggressive to me. It, it feels like a secure move that is aggressive in the sense that you need this information. You need to understand what's going to happen. I'm not going to ask for your forgiveness for telling you your future. True enough. Let's talk about just, I mean, we've kind of gotten away from just basics here. Is he motivated to know more stuff or to not feel vulnerable? That seemed the vulnerability in Moria and his, his clear vulnerability, uh, if things don't go well at that council, I think would count for eight. What do you see for five? I see, I see much more uh, his interest to understand. Mm-hmm. I completely understand why you see Moria the way that you do, but I don't agree that that strikes as a vulnerability. I think that this is this is something that is unknown, and I see a withdrawn avoidance. If we leave that dang mine closed, then that Balrog may never come to to light, and nobody will have to face it. I think you can make the the case there of fear because he does know about moria though it's not a i don't know that it's an unknown i think that he's aware i think he i think he knows that they woke up a a balrog but i don't i don't think he knows how to fight it uh i see and like like the the moments for me where where i see with the exception of 
fighting the Balrog. The moments that you see Gandalf in distress, you might say, all strike me as moments where he doesn't know something. Mm. Uh, I, I, I'm particularly thinking of outside of the mind of Moria. I once knew every spell in all the tongues of elves, men, and orcs. And like, like this is a moment of almost defeat for him. What are you going to do then? Knock your head against these doors, Peregrine Took, and if that does not shatter them, and I am allowed a little peace from foolish questions, I will try to find the opening words. That strikes me as a place of stress. Like, he's in stress, and his move goes to being really angry at the fact that he doesn't remember certain things. I, I don't see that as a moment of stress, though. Okay. I, I we're... Yeah, we're we're gonna be arguing on the line the whole time. <laughs> I would double down on stress. He looks he looks pretty mad uh, when when he can't open that door, and 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 I read that as as a five who does not have the information. Yep, that makes sense. We could make moves on the arrows and say, does he go to seven in stress or does he go to two in security? Let me make the case for two real quick. When Frodo says, I will take the ring to Mordor. The language of Gandalf is very helperish. It's it's very much taking that posture of I'm going to help you in these spaces. I will help you bear this burden, Frodo Baggins, as long as it is yours to bear. That could be extending power as an eight might. Mm-hmm. But there is language there that I will help you bear this burden as long as it's yours to bear, which which may play into something. Do you see any seven? I see. So um, most of where I see seven has more to do with his maturity and his ability to draw on seven when he wants to. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of the good things about integrating and doing doing work is that that you get to draw on those stress and security points as you need them, not necessarily when you're thrust into those spots. And so I, I see his uh, a lot of his seven coming out like more as he chooses. Uh, but also, I, I think the most stressful point that we have is him essentially running away from the Balrog. He spends a lot of time trying to avoid going through Moria. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> this foe is beyond any of you. Run! <laughs> One of my favorite t-shirts I've seen recently was, uh, I run because Gandalf tells me to. Right. It was an exercise yeah. shirt. <laughs> Love it. And uh, the the other big one for me is uh, when when Pippin grabs the Palantir, uh-huh. and Gandalf is clearly like like this is a really big deal, and and it's 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 anger that comes out, but it's also like we got to move, like like it it's almost like running away from where they are right now and on to something else. To push into that, the underlying feeling of Gandalf seems to be anger. That seems to be a dominant for this character, in fact, that he, man, he's angry all the time. Be silent. Keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. Sure. I mean, but I, it's, it's hard for me to, like, obviously you can't ignore the anger, but it's, it's also, like, I don't see that as 
a continual presence. I see his anger continually comes out as a frustration because people did something dumb. Yeah. And I think that could be, he's when he starts, he's really aggressive towards uh, Pippin. Right. And he's always calling him a fool. Right. And the judgment is aimed at his knowledge. Not, I mean, even when he is misbehaving, when he knocks over the, you know, the skeleton that goes down the well. Right. It's you're a fool, not you're clumsy. Right. Fool of a took. Throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. And and so much of Eight's anger comes out from them not having control of a situation. And I think Five anger comes out much more in situations where people are dumb. Yeah. On that side of things, that would be a great argument for feeling repression. He does he seems like a fairly active person. I don't know that action repression is what you would you would think of first with Gandalf. Well, but because that would make it a really boring story. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> That's not an argument. <laughs> no, it is. It works. No, um, I, I, I think that he, well, so his, like the action repression, he disappears constantly mm-hmm. throughout from the beginning of the Hobbit story to the end of Return of the King. Are you saying He's that nobody tells Gandalf what to do? Constantly disappearing <laughs> to go do something else. Well, why would a five do that? Well, part of it's because they, they're for, for fives who like average fives, it's because their energy has been depleted and they just, they're done. They need to go. Uh, and, mm. and also it's because they need to go learn more about a situation before they can engage with it. Like, say, if you hear someone say, my precious, and you have to go <laughs> to Minas Tirith and read stories, <laughs> read history from 3,000 years ago. It would be a, play, a move to stress there, though. Yeah. Potentially. Or it's just him trying to gain the information. The stress comes afterward. He's not stressed when he leaves. He is stressed when he comes back. Where are you going? There are some things that I must see to. What things? Questions. Questions that need answering. You've only just arrived. I don't understand. There's answers that need to be had, yeah? Yeah. And he, he leaves. He leaves in a flurry because he feels vulnerable. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. I, here would be my, my take on that beginning scene, which I think would, would go real strongly towards eight. He has encountered something very powerful that he feels vulnerable about. In stress, he withdraws to minister it is in the dungeon reading books to see what the hell's going on so that he can engage again physically the year 3434 of the second age here follows the account of Isildur the high king of Gondor and the finding of the ring of power but once he re-engages then it's on we're moving that seems very eightish to me and and to me, it seems like he hears something that sparks a memory that he does not have enough information about. Because mm. if he knew it was the one ring of power, I don't think he ever would have left it with Frodo. I think if he knew that that was something that powerful, he would have taken Frodo with him. Fair enough. 
but he has to go figure out what the heck it is first. Right. Let me give you a point, and then I, I land on one last quote. But I do think it's the case that if we were to allow the Hobbit films into this discussion, I think there's a much stronger argument for Gandalf as a five because when he's in the same room with Thorin, the energy isn't two eights. Right. He is almost always deferential. Yeah. Agreed. I'm going to, I'm sticking by eight. One other thing I think works into your cause is that he has more of a priestly presence mm. the further we get into the film as opposed to the challenger. Mm-hmm. I think he starts out as the challenger all the time. Sure. And even through, even as Gandalf the White is a challenger, but when everything culminates, he kind of lands in that priestly spot. So I'm not really ending on an argument for Gandalf <laughs> as an eight. I think the argument's still really strong. However, we could turn to the Hurrits uh, to wrap up this yeah, first character. Could. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, I'm comfortable with not deciding on Gandalf because I, I think that Gandalf is a really, really good representation of the the type of integration that we should all be striving for, which is someone yeah. who can't be typed. It, there, that's a good point. And that's, uh, to be clear, that is not to say that your type disappears. I think that Gandalf's unconscious behaviors that the rest of the world see, those are the things that he has gained control over. Yeah. All right. So, dear listener, when we have a disagreement, at the end of these discussions, we go to a book uh, at the back of Chris Heritz's The Sacred Enneagram. There is a mistyping chart. So with fives, is Gandalf a withdrawn five or a confrontational eight? Yes. I think the man is 100% confrontational. <laughs> is he with uh, cerebral like a five or instinctual like an eight? Yes. I, can, I actually would give you the point on that one. Yeah, I think he's uh, more cerebral, but d- does he prepare or does he act? Yes, man, action oriented <laughs> is still where I'm going to land. I'm giving myself like another point on that. But In he's practical- got so many things that he's already planned. Like he's he's always got like nine things planned in the works that nobody knows about. Sure enough, yeah. I suppose this is the case. Preparation is hard to show on film, whereas right. action is. Pretty right, much what, right. what you got. <laughs> uh, is he a, impractical like five or pragmatic like no, me? He's much more pragmatic. Does he retreat from life like a five or demand of life like an eight? I, I, I don't know that I can give either to him because I don't think he demands from life in the way that we typically see an eight. This might be one of those places where maturity really colors over both those things. Right. Or retreating and demanding is that's that's more about your your worst self. Yep. Does he feel powerless or does he feel powerful? Hard to say about a, a good, wizard. Yeah. That's also I don't think that's a good question. Yeah. Because eights eights feel powerless. That's a lot of where their motive comes from. Right. Does is he abstract like a five or is he grounded like an eight? Yes. Is he somewhat absent or uh, a powerful presence? Yes. Man, that is true. (laughs) Is he sensitive like five or insensitive like an eight? Yes. You think he's sensitive? 
I think uh, his almost every single moment of talking to Frodo is very caring and intuitive in ways that like being able to see what Frodo needs and, and sort of speak to what, what Frodo needs to hear. Yeah. So this may again, just be a bad pairing. I know all sorts of aides who are fantastic counselors. Mm -hmm. That's more what I see out of Gandalf is that kind of connection with Frodo, the way I would imagine an eight psychologist working. Sure. Or a, a incredibly observant five. <laughs> no, actually, a, I mean, with an integrated four wing. I feel like the energy that Gandalf gives in those moments is much more like like an eight would in terms of like their therapeutic presence. Mm. Yeah, I, again, I I still see that as five. Overwhelmed or overwhelming? I'll give overwhelming to that one. <laughs> Bilbo Baggins. But again, he's a wizard. Okay. <laughs> well, we might. Let's, I meant to. I'll bring this up. Uh, let's bring up wizards uh, uh, in, in two seconds. But last one is reserved or aggressive. Yes. And, and I think that this is just a very aggressive type. Man, he speaks um, in riddles all the time and, and does not give everyone informa- the information. They're too weak to handle it. I mean, that's just how that goes sometimes. <laughs> or he's reserved. He's keeping some of his stuff to himself. I don't feel like he's holding things close to the chest in the way that a five might. Oh, I think he is. Yeah? Yeah. All, right. All the time. Oh, there you go. Well, I feel like the general balance was more toward eight yet would play. Maybe it's the case. (laughs) The case can cleanly be made that Gandalf is so uh, mature that a lot of the security begins to blend. And even the tools that he has at his disposal Mm -hmm. have just all been incorporated on their high sides. Um, You want to talk about race? In uh, the Lord of the Rings, we mentioned this in the past, but you brought it up again here. Right. Um, wizards are a race in right. this universe. Where are some thoughts on wizards, elves, dwarves, humans, etc.? Yeah, so um, we'll talk about this a lot more when we get to the argument about Legolas and the argument about Gimli. But in particular, like there's the race and culture. Um, we mentioned this in the last episode. I think they they have a heavy influence on personality. And and I think that we're starting to talk about that in the Enneagram community, and we're not yet doing a good job of it because the Enneagram is so heavily Western right now. But it it has its origins in, in some Eastern thought. And so long story short, the, the Enneagram has... W- w- we in the West do not have good vision about how the Enneagram expresses itself in a lot of other cultures. And so we see our own cultural influence play out within the Enneagram significantly, where uh, if we were to spend some time with the Enneagram in Japan, it would be a very different sort of presentation. It would look very different. The the motivations behind these types is still present, but the way that the Japanese express themselves is very different from the big boisterous 
Americanness that that we're so much of a, so many of us are so used to. And so when we look at these characters through the Enneagram lens, uh, we have to keep that in mind. We have to remember that wizards are a different race, different culture from all of the other characters. And there's only, what, five wizards? There are five of us. Yes. The greatest of our order is Saruman, the white. Then there are the two blue wizards. I've quite forgotten their names. Yeah, so, uh, and and Tolkien wrote these characters as sort of like angels on Earth. It's the easy shorthand of how to think of these characters. So they are uh, not only stronger, more powerful, but they're also older than almost every other character. And they are, they... All of the wizards are going to be more powerful than everyone else, even poor little Radagast who hates people and only spends time with animals. So so talking about power has to be viewed through that lens. When Gandalf rises up and the clouds turn dark and, and he his voice essentially takes over all sound in the space, you have to remember that he is a wizard first. And and so if you use that specifically to talk about his power, you're eliminating a part of who he is before the Enneagram is a thing in him. So especially when you're talking about it with Bilbo. Like like he's he's literally twice as tall as Bilbo. And and so when he does that and when he exercises his power there, we have to consider the fact that he is a wizard and he is going to use tools of a wizard to execute his his goals. And and the power issue is part of him being a wizard. Now he might also be an eight. I think the the case for an eight on Gandalf is very strong. I think it is very clear to see Saruman as a five and Gandalf might be an eight because of the way that he exercises his power and his desire for control. That is very possible, but also he's still a wizard. So that, that kind of power influences how we see his character. Two things on this first, I forgot to bring up the Saruman uh, Gandalf conversation that if they were two fives, you would see the fiveness uh, and not differences in uh, personality. That might be worth uh, coming back around to. This will, that would be the third time that we've talked through <laughs> right, <laughs> through right. that scene. But yeah. uh, the second is in our culture, the way that I was interpreting your thoughts here in our culture, there are a lot of threes who want to be eights, and they mm. think that success looks like eightness, and right. so the three puts on the posturing of an eight when coming to the world that they want to succeed in. Yeah. And that's what I hear there. It's like there is motive there, but your culture really shapes how your motive materializes right? and how you get what you want in right. the culture that you find yourself in. In wizard culture, there is there is a vocation. There is uh, There are tasks at hand, things that they are made to do by, by the God figure. Right. And... There it is. I think that's entirely right to right. say that their motive isn't going to have to be filtered through the world itself and their vocation. Right. 
Bang. All right. Well, Gandalf is an eight. Moving to Elrond, who, <laughs> just to even things out, I had said this in our last conversation that uh, I had Elrond pegged as a one and uh, TJ had him as a five. And I would love to defer on this after more intensive study. I think that TJ is right. So let's just yes. jump right in to Elrond the five. Great. What do you see about the fiveness of withdrawn Elrond who looks so much different than Gandalf? My number one <laughs> most important thing about Elrond as a five comes from the Council of Rivendell. When they decide to set out, this is another uh, significant plot hole. (laughs) And I think speaks very clearly to Elrond's character and what he desires, that he's literally the only one who's been there. Right? He was there 3,000 years ago, standing (laughs) in the fires, in the... In the middle of the mountain, looking at the fires of Mount Doom, where the ring was forged. Are you saying he has some experience? He knows what it was like, and he knows how to get there. He's literally the only one who's been there, and he's going to lay out how hard this task is going to be. The ring cannot be destroyed, Gimli, son of Gloin, by any craft that we here possess. The ring was made in the fires of Mount Doom. Only there can it be unmade. It must be taken deep into Mordor and cast back into the fiery chasm from whence it came. And then let somebody else decide to do it. One of you must do this. I have never thought about that. Yep. Uh, I've never heard that. That's actually my number one thing. You don't need Gollum to show you the way if Elrond just comes in and uh, (laughs) does does his job. Elrond was there. He's gonna go to the Grey Haven soon anyway. What are you up to? Like you've already you're already mailing it in. Seriously. (laughs) One of the most powerful characters in the story. He's the only one who's been there. This is, I mean, Elrond's a very mature person. Uh, His action repression is all over this character. I, I think that Elrond is old. I don't know that I would necessarily call him mature. Okay, yeah, sure. That's more what I meant. In, in the same way that uh, He's been I, I definitely wouldn't call him mature in the same way that we call Gandalf mature. Right. That's a, that, that's a good distinction. It requires his daughter dying for him to get up and move right. and do something. Right. Otherwise, he's just judging people and their behavior. I see right. what you're doing, and you're not doing the thing you should be doing. Right. And my my other my my number two level argument has to do with with his daughter. Um, she they have a conversation where she has a vision, and she sees a child in her future. Tell me what you have seen. Arwen. You have the gift of foresight. What did you see? I looked into your future and I saw death. There is also life. You saw there was a child. You saw my son. That future is almost gone. But it is not lost. Nothing is certain. Something 
what I saw was death. <laughs> and and he is so f- from like thinking of him as a five, he has the information mm-hmm. to know that she is potentially going to have a child with Aragorn, but also that if she chooses that life, she will die. And he keeps that information to himself yep. in order to protect his resource, which is his daughter. Yep. He he withholds information in order to control her, which is a very five move. It's not even known that she will die. It's right. a strong possibility. And then that also introduces his underlying feeling, which is fear. Mm-hmm. Very, uh, just speaking about resources, when the ring is in Rivendell, that seems like a resource. Nope. He's kicking that sucker out. Right. The ring can't stay here. Right. Because he understands that it's going to infect everything that he already possesses. Right. Even though he's moving on. Yeah. Right. Uh, eventually. But but Rivendell is still his home. Like, this is this is his castle. Mm-hmm. And in order to protect his castle, the ring has to go. And one of you must do this. <laughs> Here's a map. See you later. <laughs> the other big thing with Elrond is just how nihilistic he can become. Yeah. My knowledge has led me to a place of hopelessness. Yeah. Yeah, even the um, keeping the shards of... I don't, I, I don't know how to say this word because... Narsil? <laughs> Anduril, the flame of the West, forged from the shards of Narsil those darn British accents. (laughs) Uh, Keeping the shards of Narsil in Rivendell. Why are they in Rivendell and not in Minas Tirith? That's beside the point. Uh, Keeping those shards and never doing anything with them, knowing that the guy who can actually wield them Mm -hmm. is like right there. Turned from that path a long time ago. But, But he sees someone who he does not trust. Oh, I like this. Yeah, talk about and that. They, like like his his whole relationship with Aragorn is essentially like like we're friends, but I'm not giving you anything. Like you're you're welcome here and you can't have anything of mine because I don't trust you, including my daughter. Yep. That's great. I think that's exactly right. That is a big turn when he shows up at the camp outside Rohan and hands the sword over to Aragorn, mm-hmm. ever the the mood shifts significantly yeah. Yeah. at that moment, and he is coming with information. He is engaging at that moment. I mean, mm-hmm. that is his character art. Here's maturity. Yeah. It's I actually am engaging the things I know. I understand the battle at hand. The shadow is upon us, Aragorn. The end has come. It will not be our end, but his. One of my favorite lines in this is... You ride to war, but not to victory. It's just elegantly stated, one. And two, it's fantastic observational insight into what's going on. Right. Right. You're very brave. You're going to fight really hard, and you will die in the process. Right. Something else needs to happen, and I know what it is. Take this sword and resurrect the dead let me offer you the information that i have and 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 the power that i possess yep yeah it's good 
Anything else on Elrond? Nope. I got Wormtongue next as uh, the last of your fives. Okay. Wormtongue played by the incomparable Brad Dourif. Who? That dude. Holy cow, he's so good. He's a family friend of ours for a hot minute. What? I got to work on his teeth with my dad, who's a dentist. And when I said that in the theater, and then he began to speak with his black, rotted out teeth. right. (laughs) Everybody in my row looked at me like I was an idiot. How bad is your dad as a dentist? (laughs) He's amazing. I can see Jeff's teeth. (laughs) Like I said. Don't worry, those are movie teeth. (laughs) I'm sure his hair isn't like that either. He had to shave his eyebrows and all sorts of weird oh, stuff for yeah. this role. Worth it. Totally worth it. Do love me some Brad Dourif, though. He's a fantastic actor. Uh, I had Wormtongue as a two. Okay. My my argument is pretty simple in terms of just, obviously, the he is kind of the number two helper sort. A lot of pride about what his role has been, but when getting tossed to the side of the curb by Theoden... He is imploring Theoden to see that all he had done was try to help him. I've only ever served you, my lord. He has self-seeking motives, and yet they materialize as servanthood. Hmm. Sure. I don't really have much else. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I don't have much for Wormtongue as a five either. <laughs> uh, I see his... He he reminds me like when he is in his position of power, he reminds me a lot of sort of a, a slightly more inept version of a lot of the things that we talked about with Hannibal Lecter, mm. like the the sort sure. of manipulation, the mm-hmm. the the way that he observes people and and uses them. And sort of moves them in in directions that, especially Theoden, of course. There's a specific like when he is talking to Aemir, and and uh, Aemir sort of calls him out. Uh, he he says, "You see much, Aemir, son of Aemond. Too much." Uh, and and I think, to me, that moment is about someone else seeing him be observant. And that being a a point of not not I don't want to say vulnerability, but vulnerability is probably the best word. Like like that when someone else recognizes how observant he is, that puts him in danger. Yeah, I like that. That goes to the the one other scene with him that I think showcases motive is his conversation with Eowyn, where her brother has just died. And she says, leave me alone. And he responds with a very emotionally observant line. And there's emotion all over this. Like, I can read your emotions, which twos can do. But then there, there, it's op- obviously an observation, which fives can do. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, but you are alone. Who knows what you've spoken to the darkness bitter watches of the night when all your life seems to shrink the walls of your bower closing in about you a hutch to trammel some wild thing so fair 
like a morning with pale spring still clinging to winter's chill. It feels to me like, and we, I mean, we've said it twice now, but the two and five are both manipulative mm-hmm. uh, sometimes in their tactics, yeah? Right. But that that particular line, like that, that's one of the lines that really, like, like I almost expected him to say Clarice after he says it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like he he's not saying that to try and comfort her. He's saying that to make her unsettled. Yeah, your words are poison. That I, that's a great way to put it. And even to, well, is he... Either that or he's just really inept at comforting. He's not getting leverage here through favors like a two might. Right. He's trying to use knowledge, yeah, to control the situation. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think you're right. Okay. And the, I I also think a lot about the, the way that he is with Saruman when he finally goes back and, and he's sort of interacting with Saruman. It's, it's almost like he's... There, there's a sort of like fearful childness to him, mm-hmm. and there's a like like it. A lot of his behavior when he's in Saruman's presence strikes me as like a a, a seven who's not having a good time. Like there's there's some <laughs> like, like does does that make sense? Like sure, just trying to figure like the like when he leans the candle in is like but what could possibly destroy stone and like he he's just sort of like not silly but ignorant in a way that that speaks to this sort of inquisitiveness that really strikes me as like a five moving to seven and in, in a really immature way yeah without the fun <laughs> that's, i'm down sign me up i think that's a i think that's a good diagnosis Moves us to the sixes. Uh, you had two sixes on your list. You had Sam and Eowyn. Uh, quick skinny on sixes. Uh, sixes are the center of that head triad, the um, the most sort of outwardly fearful of the three, five sixes and sevens. And they are looking for their security outside of themselves. Like a lot of what we talked about with fives has to do with with trying to find security, protect their resources. Like like information is their security, so they gather. And and sixes are looking for that security for for protection, for for support from outside of themselves. Because first and foremost, they don't trust themselves. And so they so they, they outsource their their safety. Bang. So I had Sam as a two. Sam strikes me as a quintessential two. Clearly, he is, in my mind, getting his value from serving another. Uh, deeply desires the attention of Frodo. Uh, relationally connected, ends up downplaying his own needs, pushing into the needs of the people that he loves. And the biggest clue for me on Sam as a two is in stress, he gets ferociously defensive um, for the people that he loves. What's your, what's your case for Sam as a six? I think all of those things are true because Sam's a six. <laughs> so uh, I, I put him 
at six because I think that he is continually looking for how things are going to go wrong and how we need to prepare for what's going to go wrong. Uh, I think that he is a very fearful. He's possibly one of the most fearful characters. Uh, but like a lot of sixes, he engages in those places of fear despite his fear and finds himself prepared for it. I think that he is extremely loyal to Frodo in part because he loves him, in part because uh, Frodo and this task has become sort of his responsibility and in part because he agreed to do it. I made a promise, Mr. Frodo. A promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. Like that kind of loyalty is very six-ish. And just the way that he, like his, his preparation and his, he, he's always looking for to, to be ready. And, and to me, that's, that's very six is like, we need to be ready for the things that are coming. The thing, so twos and sixes are both going to be earners. Uh, they're going to share, share the same stance. A lot of the the similarities, it seems to me, are coming out of that space. Yeah, agreed. I do not see Sam as a fearful person. That was one of the things I was really looking for, and I just didn't see it in the dialogue. In fact, even the language of always bringing up problems just isn't in Sam's language very often. There are times where when future problems emerge in Sam's language, I think they're always about whether or not he can serve Frodo well. And they're not about here's how I might get hurt or how my, how our company might get hurt. That was my take. Mm. I think that we have to, for me, I would argue that you have to defer to Sean Aston's performance. Okay. If you only read the dialogue, you might be correct. But if you watch Sean Aston actually perform the dialogue, fear is all over this character. He's afraid to talk to Rosie. He, when... Gandalf pulls him out of the uh, out of the garden because he was eavesdropping. Please, Mr. Gandalf, sir, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me in anything unnatural. <laughs> those are ten, those are two good examples. Good. And that's just that's before they've even started. Well, you can go you can go further. Once they get out of the shower, are they moving? <laughs> I I can't think of anything else. <laughs> I I think that he is. Um, He's a great example of a character who pushes through their fear, but he is constantly displaying it. And I'm trying to think of other examples of that, but I, my, my two big quotes don't include really fearful moments. I suppose put a pin in that then, I, I, in terms of their underlying feelings. Mm -hmm. The thing with Gandalf is there's the loyalty is also a relational claim that he has a relation, he would be ashamed if he didn't live up to his side of telling Gandalf that he was going to stay with Frodo. But even the promise there, he might be telling Frodo that's what he said. I don't think that's why. I don't think that that's what's motivating Samwise most. I think he's motivated to be with Frodo because he loves Frodo. I, I don't think that excludes sixes. I think that no, that's, I, I don't either. Yeah, that that loyalty, like that. This is one of the places where where two and six, like like 
for people who might be mistyping themselves as a two or a six, this is one of the places where two and six are really similar in, in their dedication to the people that they attach to. I mean it more as I, he may be saying that uh, he made a promise. Mm-hmm. I may have missed a promise. I may have promised. I don't think that's why oh, yeah. he's diving into the lake. He's diving into the lake because he loves Frodo. I I think that love for Frodo and a a very intense sense of duty can coexist. True enough. Yeah, I I suppose it's I just see way more of the emphasis on the relational connection than I do on on the dutiful side. Just that that I don't know how to say that, but the the language of mothering that comes out of Sam's mouth all the time is also. It ju- it just is always mothering. I don't know if that's a six thing, but that certainly is a two thing. It's certainly a six thing as well. Okay, because there's a there's a preparedness. It's like like we need to, you need to take care of yourself because that is how we're going to get through this. Part of my duty as your second is to take care of you. Yeah, the way that he copes with problems feels very two-ish to me and not six-ish where a six might want you to share their fears. I feel like he's always spinning things in a positive way. It's here's llama's bread. And look. More llama's bread. I don't usually own the foreign food, but this other stuff, it's not bad. (laughs) Nothing ever dampens your spirits, does it, Sam? One of the few places where I could pin that down, but I don't see, I don't see, uh, I don't see him saying you need to share my fears. Aside from, well, now I'm gonna, I do think of, he does want Frodo a fear golem. Yeah, and I just walked right into that. Didn't well, I? and and like the 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 sarcasm displayed by the lambda's bread thing okay. is also True like enough. that strikes me as pretty six-ish. I I think he's on the edge. <laughs> there's yeah there's there's a lot of his taking care of frodo that like there there's a a part of that where there is an amount of s- positive spinning to but i don't i don't see that as how he's facing conflict cuz uh, th- to me those moments that he is spinning positive I, I don't think he's in conflict in those moments. I think mm-hmm. he is, that is part of him taking care of Frodo, which in my argument is is part of his loyalty, His that comes from his sickness. Sure. It is his duty to take care of Frodo. Sure. To me, to me if he were a two, he wouldn't just be attached to Frodo. I think he would also be very concerned about the well-being of, like he he would want the same kind of affection from other people, and I don't you don't see him attaching to other people in the way that he's attached to Frodo. He would try to begin everybody's affection. Yeah, because twos want everyone to love them. I like this as an argument for six that he it's more there's a role than being played. Mm-hmm. And that does not exclude his love for for Frodo. No, it, right. it's part of it. Yeah, as we all know, sixes are cold hearted. Don't love anyone, so it's all <laughs> duty. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, the the that would make I I I think that could make a lot of sense. There's the earning that comes from other people isn't very common. Him looking for 
the weeds for Aragorn to heal Frodo, or there's just not much. Yeah. Rosie, but not much. Yeah. And and here again, we have to we have to remember that for the vast majority of when we see Samwise on screen, he is with two other people. Right. And one of them is a villain. <laughs> and I, I, I honestly think that, that a two would not see Gollum as a danger. I, I think that two would be a more afraid of Gollum usurping him like like taking away the the special place that he has for Frodo as opposed to the six seeing Gollum as a villain as someone to be feared. There is some of that language from Sam at the end right before Frodo erupts. It's uh but he's a liar. He's poisoned you against me. I don't see Sam using manipulation at all. I don't know if six right. has used manipulation, but yeah, I, I think Sam is, is just pointing out the danger that so he sees. Both twos and sixes become more aggressive in stress. Mm-hmm. Twos become more mama bearish with the eight and sixes push into three. Look at, I assume there's an attention that is desired there. Mm-hmm. I could help a bit. I could carry it for a while. Carry it for a while. I could carry the load. And that does feel like some of the what you see in Sam. Yeah. And I think that um, a wise and mature, I, th- this is going to be tricky for us because a wise and mature two would draw on the strength of their stress point, which is eight, and sort of take charge. And a wise and mature six would draw on the stress point at three and get the job done and sometimes in a sort of showy way and so like like in particular thinking about him coming back and and defeating shelob you you could point to either of those Mm -hmm. and say yeah that that looks like this but i think most of the time his his stress points are are hard to point to as as being mature representations because I, I, yeah, I think that that Shelob is is like the the most the the biggest point of his arc. Mm-hmm. Two big things just to wrap up for me is one, at like twos, he shuts down his own needs and seeks to serve those around him to get what he wants. But on the affect side, for sixes, there's just the attachment for security. Does Frodo provide him security? I think his his duty provides him security. Okay. Yeah. There you go. The last one is I think that a huge line for Sam in terms of his culminating experience in the second movie is the banter he has with Faramir in which Sam tells Faramir, Captain Faramir, you've shown your quality, sir. Very highest. And Faramir says, Shire must truly be a great realm, Master Kemji. Where gardeners are held in high honor. That strikes me as the sort of thing that is not asked for, but really desired by a two to be acknowledged for the service that they've done. Sure. And you could also say that that is uh, 
a four offering offering significant observational attention to a six who doesn't really get it that often and doesn't necessarily even want it. Cause I don't, I, I don't think like, I, I think that's a good moment. And, and for the sake of storytelling, like if this is part of what Sam wanted to hear, this is a good way of displaying that that's what Sam wanted by giving it to him. But also I, I don't see Sam reacting to that in a way that's like, thank you. I see Sam sort of like sloughing that off. Yeah. I've never thought about twos and sixes being hard to distinguish from each other. Because I often aren't, but sometimes. I mean, like the mistyping side of things, I would, it just hasn't been one of those things that's come up. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we've really encountered it very often. But, but yeah, but when you throw a real, when somebody's primary function in a story is as a servant. Mm-hmm. And this is why I, I think that there's like, I, I talked about in the last episode that the, the internet is filled with incorrect typings. And this is almost everyone types Sam as a two. And I think it's because he is in that servant role, but I don't think he's there because he's looking for affection. I think he's there out of a sense of duty and, and there is love for Frodo, but that duty that, that love informs his duty. Yeah. Let's go to the book real quick. Okay. We can move on. Great. The uh, is Sam a two who seeks love, or is Sam a six who seeks support? I think he's looking for support. Is Sam a two who is loving and helpful, or is Sam a six who's playful and silly? I do not know very many sixes who are playful and silly. I have yeah. no idea why that's an option. <laughs> is Sam a two who's sure of self, or a six who's unsure? Unsure. Is Sam a two who needs merging or a six who wants independence? What is that about? That's a right. terrible question. We, we might start getting rid of this book. Um, <laughs> I think which the five, would, eight one was a pretty good. <laughs> was, was very strong. Distinction. We, we have gotten to that spot, TJ, you and I, where we're better than the books. <laughs> is he a two who's manipulative or a six who's reactive? I think he's reactive. And we talked about that. Two is he a two that has positive f- feelings or a six who's ambivalent? I also don't know very many sixes who are ambivalent. I mean, they're just missing the sixes here. Yeah. Two's is he a two who becomes an authority or a six who looks to authority? I think he looks to authority. Yeah. See a two who makes others dependent or a six who becomes dependent. Ooh, that's a good distinction. I like that as a distinction. Ask it again. See a two that makes others dependent or a six who becomes dependent. I think he becomes dependent. Yeah. I think that's probably that's the money that's a, line for yeah, me right there. Yeah, that's a good one right there. See a two that's self-assured or a six who's self-doubting. Self-doubting. Do you think uh, where do you see that? The all I, over I'll, the place. I'll go with six on this, but I don't see him as self-doubting character. I, I think he is continually deferring, and 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 like he's the one with the pots. Like I I I think he continually sees himself as the supporting character. Hmm. Yeah, okay. And and, and well, they're in particular when uh when him and Frodo are talking about the great stories. I wonder if we'll ever be put into songs or tales. What? 
I wonder if people will ever say, let's hear about Frodo in the ring. And they'll say, yes, it's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was really courageous, wasn't he, Dad? Yes, my boy. The most famousest of hobbits. And that's saying a lot. <laughs> but, like, that that's a real moment of, of him s diminishing himself. You've left out one of the chief characters. Samwise the Brave. I want to hear more about Sam. Frodo wouldn't have got far without Sam. Now, Mr. Frodo, you shouldn't make fun. I was being serious. So was I. Sam says to himself, Samwise the Brave. Yeah, he doesn't see himself as brave at all. And and in the end, he's he's the one who saves he's the one hero. Right. Who saves everything. Said this in the last episode that Tolkien thought after writing the book, he looked back and said he thought Sam was the chief hero. Which I also think is a really good representation for sixes. Mm -hmm. Like sixes who continually and so so severely doubt themselves when they are put in situations where they actually have to step up they find that they are capable and they're they have prepared and and they're they're brave and they're strong and that's the lesson that so many sixes so desperately need to learn that they Truth. are capable it's a good word let's put a marker here because we're at about that spot where we would want to put a marker down uh, sure. the uh well but we're gonna pick up this <laughs> this apparently four-part series <laughs> if you do the math next time um we're gonna we're gonna jump into the rest of the sixes sevens eights and ones next time so uh it would mean the world to us if you take two seconds give us some stars i say it every time you're already turning off the podcast before you do give us some stars because because we we're needy and uh, this it's been our duty to serve you here. Uh, this makes no sense, but <laughs> stars, just give us stars. <laughs> you can find all the links to all of our stuff at aroundthecircle.org and shout outs on Twitter and Instagram are always appreciated, which TJ that we had at least six or seven people show us their Spotify uh, most listened to lists. Oh, nice. The, the wrap up is that what it's called? Spotify wrap up. For all of you who posted those, we appreciate it. There's uh, one, one got as high as three thousand minutes. Wow, awesome! Of around the circle goodness consumed. That's great. So if you really want to get super fan status for next year, get to it. Yeah, Spotify <laughs> knows. Spotify knows. <laughs> That's what I got. You got anything else? I got nothing, man. He's TJ Wilson. He's officially awesome and clearly in the lead. And I'm Jeff Cook. And who you aren't isn't interesting. Take the ring to Mordor and throw it in the fires of Mount Doom so it may be destroyed. One of you must do this. <laughs>